Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Cale Guthrie Weissman. I'm the editor of Modern Retail, and I'm joined with Emily Schilt, the founder of Pop Up Grocer. How's it going, Emily? How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for joining us. Of course, my pleasure. So, I'm excited to sort of dig into what it's like being an entrepreneur in the startup grocery scene, especially during, you know, whatever you want to call it, the age of coronavirus, blah, blah, blah. But I'd love to just sort of start with sort of a background. What what is Pop-Up Grocer? How did it start? I have a general idea, but just so, you know, our listeners, you know, know where we're we're coming from. Yeah. Um, So Pop-Up Grocer is a traveling showcase of the newest and most interesting grocery items. So we're kind of like a trade show meets modern retail concept. We come into various cities across the country and we display about 150 brands, uh, close to 400 products at a time um, for about 30 days. And then we scoot and move on to the next city, showcase a different variety of products. Um, So, yeah, we were started in April of 2019. So just last year, we're a little bit over a year old. Uh, We've had four store locations to date. We'll have our fifth uh, in Brooklyn. Uh, Yeah, this October. That's very exciting. So what gave you the idea? How did you come up with the idea of doing a traveling grocery showcase? And does your background lend to that? It does. Yeah. what a weird concept. <laughs> so I think, I think, um, I mean, what I was doing in 2018, the year before I started it, uh, I'd spent a month in London, um, a summer there, and I was visiting all a bunch of grocery stores, just kind of a European uh, concept at large, I guess, these like grocery stores within a department store. Um, in London, there's Selfridges, there's Harrods. Um, they're very upscale. Uh, in Paris, there's one I love called the Bon Marché. Um, there's an international grocery store in the basement there. Uh, and they were just like beautiful spaces in which to shop, gorgeous products, um, but really thoughtful display and design. And so I think I came back personally really yearning for a grocery store experience like I'd had there. Um, and then there was kind of a confluence of things going on um, in the U.S. as far as like consumer trends, um, some challenges that CPG brands were facing uh, and Um, just like what, what was happening in the grocery retail landscape. And I was a brand marketer. Um, Mm. I guess in a, in a sense I am. (laughs) And, uh, I was working with a lot of small food companies, helping them to bring products to market. So I was really familiar with those challenges that they were facing at retail and in bringing, uh, new products to market. And so I wanted to create a, a different environment for them um, for the product launch. And so that kind of, uh, married well with what I was noticing was missing as far as like a consumer grocery shopping experience. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I, uh, I'm obsessed with markets in Europe specifically because they are really good at that discovery angle, but there's also sort of usually at least in, I can't speak for the UK, but like in places like France, a much more localized sort of agrarian where you like see where things are from and they're there. And so I feel like some grocery stores in the US, like maybe Whole Foods have attempted to go for that way, but they haven't quite gone there. Like what, how did you sort of approach that problem? Do you think that it's sort of the nomadic way of just going from spot to spot is how you do that? Is there a design element to, to how you've, how you've approached this too? How, How are you, how are you going about that? 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think like, like Whole Foods used to be sort of the early adopters grocery store, you know, Mm -hmm. now we know, we know that story, uh, bought it and the rest is history. Um, you know, and there are a couple other losses like that of Dean and DeLuca, like RIP. Um, and so we just don't really have that pinnacle of a grocery store, uh, here anymore. Um, and so, yes, certainly from a design standpoint, but more importantly, from a curatorial standpoint, it's the products that we have inside our doors, um, you know, just very simply the ones that we select, like their quality, mm-hmm. their packaging, um, their sort of innovative perspective, uh, but also it's the limited number of uh, products that we have. So, I mean, we have 400, your average grocery store has 35,000. So even if you are a Whole Foods at, in its heyday, where you're really selecting the kind of products that people want to be buying right now, as a consumer, as a shopper, you probably aren't seeing them because there's just so much crap that you have to sift through. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's just a very crowded space. It's not, it's really not built for discovery. So can you talk a little about how you go about sourcing for, for, for all of your, uh, your locations? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we select between 150 to 175, um, Brands, they either have to be uh, launching a new product or they are very new entirely themselves. Um, but the three criteria are, one, uh, is what they're creating really new and novel? Like, are they using an ingredient in a new way, such as cauliflower as crust um, instead of a steamed vegetable? Are they using chickpeas as a drink? Um and, you know, is there an interesting founding story? Uh, is there sustainability comp- component? Um, you know, how are they sort of helping us make the world a better place? Uh, so that's the biggest one. So it's kind of the story aspect that's number one for us. And then number two, if it's a food and beverage product, product which um, large majority of ours are, we do have some home pet and body care. Uh, then it has to meet some nutritional standards, um, some ingredient responsibilities. Uh, and then the third criterion is, um, does it look pretty? (laughs) So, uh, that's very, um, subjective I realize, but yeah, uh, things that we find attractive and we believe that those who come to visit us would be intrigued by. Is there ever a thought of how big they, like, I imagine that they view being in a place like you, like a stepping stone in a way to get more eyeballs. And so how do they, how do you think of the manufacturing in terms of what they can scale? Is it, is, are they hoping to then go from pop-up grocer to then potentially get a placement in a more localized grocery store? How are, how are you sort of positioning that in the overall ecosystem? Yeah. So the way that we pitch it to the brands that we partner with that are featured in store is that it's really a way for them to get immediate exposure and visibility to a valuable audience. Mm -hmm. Largely, that's those that they want to buy their product in the long term. We're really not that focused on in-store immediate sales as much as we are the discovery. Um, but you know, the idea is that then those consumers will go and buy the products in their local convenience store, whether that's offline or online, um, now. Uh, but we also invite media and influencers, buyers, investors into our space. Um, so that's kind of the trade show component. And we've had a lot of success, uh, in brands being in our store and then immediately getting buy-ins from, you know, the wow. big guys like Whole Foods or Erewhon. Um, and as those are very influential, um, in the, you know, greater retail ecosystem, um, then they have, they have, uh, the ability to influence more retail buy-ins. 
Was that sort of your idea to have that trade show element for them sort of on a B2B level? Or was that just sort of something that happened organically? I think it was because I myself, have, I've been in the industry for the entirety of my career and I was so sick of going to these trade shows. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really selfish. It's like, I just don't want to do it anymore. And, you know, the I, ta- I still talk to buyers all the time and they're just like, I don't understand where you're finding these brands. And I'm like, I'm sorry, dude, in your 50s, I'm on Instagram. (laughs) Like, this is where it's at, man. Um, So I was really kind of aware of how I was finding these alternative modern ways in which to source brands where buyers were traditionally relying upon these large trade shows. And at these trade shows, they just have hundreds of products similar to the grocery store Mm -hmm. that you have to sift through in order to really find the ones that are worth your time. Um, So I I think, you know, I, I was very much thinking about a smaller environment in which for buyers to discover these items as well. Can you talk, I'm, I love that idea that you're using Instagram as the sourcing platform. And I mean, I imagine that that's, you know, ev- every industry has its own filter bubbles and has its own social circles with which they source their, their new talent from. And so how, you know, with the CPG, it's those trade shows specifically, it's the inroads they have with the, with the people that they already know. How, like, how are you going about it? Is it just sort of using the people that you know through Instagram, through your past connections? What, what other new ways are you using to, to find these new sources who might not have the connections that others do? Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of cold outreach. I, you know, I mean, really like, I I like to share that because I think people, you know, find starting their own business so hard if they don't have all of the connections. Um, and it's hard, even if you do have a lot of connections, which I did, I mean, in our first store, like, you know, I'd been a brand marketer, I'd been in the space for a while. So, um, you know, I had a good foundation from which to launch and, um, have people make introductions, but no, I mean, we find a lot of the a lot of the brands that we source are the ones that you're getting advertisements from because I'm getting them as well. <laughs> and then I message them and I'm like, Hey, I see you're spending, uh, on Instagram. Why don't we also introduce a physical component and actually like get people to touch, feel and trial your product. Um, because what's interesting is that we're seeing a lot of people who come into our stores and the number one piece of feedback or a thing that we overhear is them saying, oh my God, these are all the things I've seen on Instagram and now I can (laughs) actually try them. And I find that so interesting because what you can try them, like that's why they're advertising to you. There's a click button there where you can shop now, you know? So for some reason, I think for food specifically, um, there's just a disconnect between e-commerce and um, the physical grocery store. And and we're seeing that in the numbers, you know, I mean, still only like 4% of um, all food and beverage purchases are are made online. Yeah. I mean, do you, are you, with the startups you're talking with, I feel like there's a huge movement, especially now, especially actually like in COVID times that they're trying to be you know, digitally only, digitally native food products. And that's, you know, that is their distribution. And it makes sense on a certain level because you can advertise on Instagram and then you don't have to deal with these other partners. How are you dealing with a lot of brands that never had actually thought about doing a physical showcase before because they were trying to follow this sort of DTC playbook? Yes, but I also think there are only only a 
few kinds of brands that knew they had the potential to be successful exclusively D to C. I think most see that as like a, a start, a good starting point. Yeah. Um, you know, like I, I know you had um, Sanzo on from, or sorry, Sandro on. I always, I always do that. <laughs> They're similar names. I mean, we, he made it really hard for us. <laughs> I know you had Sandro on from Sanzo, which is a brand that we've had um, in Pop Up Grocer, and uh, I just love him. He's he's such a great guy. But um, but yeah, I mean, he was speaking specifically about the increase in um, e-commerce uh, for their business, and uh, that makes sense to me as like a sparkling beverage. That's something that you. Uh, can anticipate uh, ingrained in your everyday life and thus you're willing to subscribe and plan for it. Um, but a lot of our our items in store are true novelty specialty items that you just really aren't, aren't going to commit to without trial. Um, and you certainly aren't going to subscribe to in the long run um, for regular purchase. So I think it's just unrealistic uh, of an expectation to believe that you could build a long-term um, e-com business. I think. That makes sense. Yeah, no, I think you're totally right. I think also there's been a growing realization. The, like, I feel like maybe a year or two ago, there were some companies that thought, you know, maybe we could do only e-commerce. And now all of them, they, they realize that, you know, unfortunately, a place like Walmart or a place like Whole Foods is their their friend if they want to get that kind of distribution. I, I've talked to a lot of founders who are like, yep, that's the number one question my investors are asking me now is like, how do I get on those shelves, which, you know, is a reality of the of the industry. Yeah, it's a bummer. I mean, yeah, I hate saying that, you know, Walmart is, is anything that's uh, <laughs> necessary, but unfortunately it is. Yeah. Um, I'd love to. So before, like, let's say before February, what were your thoughts in terms of growing, uh, growing pop-up grocer? Like what were your, how, how were you, was it just going to more cities? Were there any other sort of expansion plans? How were you approaching that thought? And then we'll get into what actually happened given that everything sort of changed. But <laughs> Yeah. I mean, honestly, and maybe this is a very uninteresting answer, but not a whole lot of, for us has changed. You know, I feel like retail, a lot of the retailers that are suffering now are the ones that were suffering before. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, I know this is a convenient theory for me, but I feel like we were a little bit ahead of ahead of the ball and understanding what was coming. Um, so, um, so yeah, so I mean, back in February, yeah, we, we planned for more cities. We hit three this year. Uh, is that right? Yeah, we will have hit three by the end of this year where we had initially hit, well, it would have hit four. Um, but we just opened a store in June in Austin. Um, and so that was very much amidst COVID. And with some operational adjustments, we actually saw greater success in some ways than we had in previous stores. Um, we increased like our, our, we sustained our overall traffic numbers, but we increased the number of people who were coming there with intent. So it was like, no one was just passing by being like, Ooh, what's this interesting yeah. concept? Um, but everyone who was coming knew exactly what we were, what to experience. We're super jazzed about it. Um, and so we doubled our basket size because people wow. were also committing. I think, to the experience more. And thus, that was reflected in how much they were spending. Um, and we introduced private appointments. So I think people also just felt obligated, like, hey, I made this point to be here. I got to throw a lot of things it's in my It's actually true. Basket. I never even thought of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, that gave us the confidence to open, you know, this fall in New York since it, it went pretty well. I mean, as it turns out, I think a, a grocery store event is kind of the perfect pandemic business. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. And I imagine that people were... Oh, not overly excited. How would I put this? That they 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 have been so living in such a different reality that to go to a new store that they could go into and you know and buy food items that wasn't their normal you know 
whatever, you know, Walmart, whatever, that's probably more exciting than it would have been before the pandemic, I would imagine. For me, I would be excited to go into a new store. Totally. I mean, yeah, we're creating an environment against an exi- that's better against an existing behavior that people are already comfortable with. Like they understand that grocery shopping is something that they've had to maintain amidst the pandemic, but we're actually like giving them better products, better design, better environment, better uh, safety precautions. I mean, in Texas, like, I don't know, I just felt like one day things just completely went loose and like anybody was allowed in the store. There were no distancing um, restrictions there. You know, there were, I saw people in there without masks. It was like pop-up grocery was like a true uh, respite in that. Like we were actually limiting the number of people that Mm -hmm. were inside. We were requiring masks. We were requiring hand sanitization. Um, You know, we were giving personal service. We were keeping our distance, et cetera. So yeah, I think, I think it's very much something people are looking for right now. Did you find that to be, because that's a huge problem national retailers are dealing with right now that like is kind of depressing to watch where, you know, they say that they're going to allow me, people have masks, but they're not enforcing it. They're, they're trying to figure out the rules, yeah. but they're inconsistent and they're, and it's, it goes, you know, points to a lot of different issues, but as someone who is during the, you know, the height of coronavirus, you were in Austin, how did you go about like talking with your staff about that and figuring that out and being consistent with those kinds of rules so that, you know, staff felt safe, people felt safe. And it also was, you know, especially in, you know, contradistinction to other stores that aren't having the, aren't operating with that kind of string, so stringent guidelines. Yeah. I mean, we operate a thousand square feet space um, and we allow and we allow just four people in at a time. So it really wasn't difficult for us to manage traffic. Uh, We operated a line outside. I actually found that to be a really friendly, lovely addition (laughs) to the experience because then we had this like greeter who was just chatting. And I mean, from a selling standpoint, also, we were able to prematurely introduce them to some of the products. We sampled beverages to the line. We were chatting about some of the things we were excited about that were inside. Um, So it kind of enhanced the storytelling component of the experience. Um, And, you know, we'll we'll maintain that for the remainder of this year as long as as long as we must, which yeah. is continuously are, unknown. Are you thinking, are there any new uh, protocols or technologies that you've brought in now that you think will stick for the long run? I definitely think the private appointments are something we will maintain in the long run, um, not just because they resulted in higher sales, um, but because people are able to identify their dietary restrictions or Mm. anything else that they want to share with us that will enhance a personal experience. Um, And that has been really great. I mean, you know, if you're vegan or you have an allergy to nuts before you come in, we're armed and ready to introduce you to the things that we believe you'll like. Um, and so that will definitely stick around. Yeah. Um, did you change your marketing schema at all in terms of when you're going to, you know, given the change in the times, how did you get the word out? What was your general way of having people know that there was a new store, temporary store that was there? It was a challenge. I mean, we operate in a very short sprint. Um, we start a campaign about four to six weeks out from opening and then we've got the four weeks while we're open and then that's it. Um, so if you look at Austin very specifically, uh, the month of June was quite a challenge because on top of this global pandemic, we had this national civil unrest, um, and it wasn't appropriate, nor did we really want to be 
talking about plant-based ice cream and there was <laughs> a crisis in the country that needed to be addressed. Um, so it was a challenge, but, uh, but you know, we, we addressed it with sensitivity. We have actually used it as an opportunity to um, reconfigure how our give back component um, will exist moving forward, um, which is something that we're excited to share at a later time. Uh, you know, everything, everything is, is an opportunity. If you can wake up in the morning and <laughs> look at it that way, which not every day is an easy thing, but how did you like from the nuts and bolts do you, for, for your marketing pl- campaign, is it just using Instagram local ads? Like how, like what are, what are the ways that you tell people about it? Yeah, so it's it's heavily reliant upon social media, which we do organic and we do paid. Um, but we also have influencers who come through mm-hmm. uh, at the very start of the event um, and really help to spread word of mouth that way. Um, you know, PR is a huge aspect, so we are heavy on uh, local outreach specifically um, to really drive traffic, but also, you know, national outreach to uh, make people aware of the concept. Um, so, yeah, those are kind of the, the the three or four, whatever I just named, four prongs um, of the marketing campaign leading up to and, and over the course of the duration of the store. And what are, you know, when you're scouting new locations, do you have certain, you know, it needs to be, you know, this type of demographic who lives there, it needs to be this big of a city. How are you thinking about the new places you're going to? Yeah, so Austin was an interesting learning for us in that um, it's much smaller than New York and L.A., which are the two other cities that we've been to. Um, And I think more importantly, there's kind of a unified sense of community there. Uh, Austin is really about supporting Austin and whatever's happening there. Um, And there's kind of a central focus on what's happening uh, because your attention isn't spread thin across like a myriad of things like there are in New York and L.A., Um, and so I think it's much easier to drive traffic in that sense. Uh, LA was just like, (laughs) I don't know, that place is weird uh, is what I learned. Um, I mean, we were successful there, but it's just, you know, due to the very, uh, unique nature of the driving culture, um, and the, and the distance between places, like, it's just hard to get people to go anywhere as as far as events are concerned. Whereas New York, you know, I just, I think people are much more willing because it's very easy. Um, but yeah, I think moving forward, you know, we'll look at uh, smaller cities um, where there's more of a need, I think, for this access to not only the type of items that we sell, but also um, just events and and fun, interesting concepts and new things to do. Um, so cities like Nashville um, or where else to be looking? I mean, Chicago is kind of an obvious one. Um, you know, it's more similar to New York, I guess, but still like uh, a bit smaller. Um and Denver, you know, kind of like uh, emerge, uh, emerging cities, <laughs> if you will. Uh, they're not, they don't exactly count as emerging, but as far as like cool places to live and, and places where people are migrating. And then of course, like, you know, a sense, a strong food culture, um, and a strong interest in like, a health conscious, healthy lifestyle, um, conscious food consumption. I'm really interested in the LA thing because LA is a a really interesting city just because it is a car culture. It's sort of sprawled and segmented in a specific way, just in terms of how you you're going forward. Were there any long-term lessons that because something didn't work in LA or something worked differently? Like how how did you, how did you deal with those very city specific issues and create maybe new ways about that answer to your business going forward? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's a direct result of of the 
city-based learnings of this year, but we're definitely interested in having a long-standing flagship location mm. um, where we can constantly rotate our inventory, sort of operate our current model, um, but within a reliable, long-standing uh, location that can really serve as like the nation's destination for discovery. Um, so that's something that we're very actively looking to create. Wow. Yeah. And so that was, that goes into my next question, which is, and I guess this half answers it, but is growth for you over the next, you know, six months to a few years, is it just doing many more cities? There's the, this, uh, flagship location. Is it doing simultaneous cities? How are you, how are you looking at, I mean, I imagine simultaneous cities would be very difficult, but I, I, I'd love to hear like how you're going about that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're self-funded to date. I mean, the business funds itself, um, and that will have to change as my ambition <laughs> doesn't. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we're going to f- be focused on on that pretty soon in terms of getting some outside capital um, to really scale this. And I think at least in the near term, as far as like the next few years, it will be this flagship location um, and then a couple cities each year uh, where we can go and, and introduce or reintroduce ourselves. Um, I don't think simultaneous is uh, feasible with at least within the near term, um, but continuing the pop up model while also introducing this sort of pop up within brick and mortar um, is in is in the near future. We've also introduced ecom. You know that was something that oh um, that's something that was always on the horizon, but just a bit accelerated uh, amidst the pandemic. Uh, so we created these boxes. They're a curation of some of the items that we have in store, and we ship them directly nationwide to people in their homes, um, in their offices, potentially in the future. Uh, and so we'll continue to do that and involve that. Um, which we're really excited about and, you know, is a, is a new stream uh, of revenue, but also just of excitement for us. Can you talk, how, how did that turn out? What, you know, did, did people like the boxes? How did you go about marketing the boxes? What was sort of the, what were the results? Yeah, people really have loved the boxes. I mean, I think our challenge moving forward will be that we are an experienced business. So much of the, uh, joy that's felt within our space is due to how we design the space. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think uh, the boxes are very much enjoyable as they are to date and that they kind of surprise and delight people with the products that are inside. You don't know when you're ordering them Um, comes with some like fun merch items from us, chip clips, stickers, um, magnets, t-shirts, socks, all that fun stuff. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and that's great. And I'm really excited about, other ways in which we can translate this element of discovery and surprise and delight um, moving forward to make that a little bit more comparable to the in-store experience. Were there any other elements, because this is a, a big topic that everyone, you know, in, in, you know, especially in, in the in the physical space, but just elsewhere are talking about in terms of if you if you, there's an experience, ex- an experiential part of your business, making that digital. I imagine that like for you, it's the boxes, but how, like, what are, how did you, and you're a physical location. So, you know, there is, it's very much going into the place, but how did you, did you change any aspects that were, you know, be they events or et cetera? How did you go about making that more digital or more conducive to the times we're living in? 
Yeah. I mean, usually in our in-store locations, we have um, programming. So in a 30-day period, we'll probably run between 12 and 15 events. We bring tastemakers in across various industries to talk about a variety of topics of interest to our community, you know, within the like healthy living, under the healthy living umbrella. Um, So we are translating that virtually, you know, probably won't be in that volume, um, but a limited number of virtual events uh, that will still correlate with the timing of the store. Um, And I think, you know, in the future, there are definitely other ways that digitally we can translate kind of the conversational aspect of the experience. I mean, people love to talk about their snacks. <laughs> uh, like people, people often refer to the like post store experience uh, as Christmas, you know, where like, or Christmas as a kid, like where you would report to all of your friends what you got. Um, so I definitely think there are ways that we can continue to nurture and encourage and, and further facilitate that as well. Like whether it's reviews or, um, you know, just a, a, a communal reporting of how you found a product to be or what could be enhanced. And that could prove to be very valuable to the brands that we're partnering with as well. Can you talk a little about, cause you know, I know that it's a mix of both, you know, nationally available and very localized brands. How do you talk, how do you talk with the local brands? Are a lot of them just like farms or, or different things, you know, or different like makers like that? I feel like that there, there are many different kinds of entrepreneurs and businesses in many different stages. And it seems like you, play with sort of different different sizes of them and probably speak differently about the scope of the project, if that makes any sense. Yes. Uh, for a lot of brands that have, you know, literally just wrapped their cookie in its <laughs> first round of packaging, you know, um, we're like educating on yeah. what, what marketing is and uh, you know, when I tell them that it's a guaranteed 10 cent CPV, they're like, oh, what's a CPV? <laughs> um, so, 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 you know, it's a lot of educating. It's a, it's a lot of, um, handholding, which is personally hard for me. Cause I, I feel like there's this, uh, line between educating and like overselling or promising, yeah. um, that I don't ever want to cross. Uh, but yeah, but then of course, you know, for those who are much more sophisticated, it's almost like, yeah, sure. We'll, we'll throw money at this. So somewhere in the middle, uh, are those that, that are probably make up the bulk of the brands that we work with. But I think people tend to assume we are a localized concept since we're kind of coming to each city. Uh, they naturally think that we're going to be featuring the brands, uh, or at least a large percentage of our brands will be those, um, nearby. But actually, it's kind of the opposite um, because the local brands are having much more success in local retailers. And what we want yeah. to do is bring the brands from outside um, and introduce them to the local community and the local retailers um, so that they can start to have, you know, a, a presence there. Interesting. And do you do you spend a lot of time in the cities before you set up the locations? How do you go? About, like, is the scouting very physical or is it mostly digital where you're like, this will be good and we found this space and we think it'll be it'll work out? Yeah. I think it will become less physical. It, it was more physical in this first year of existence, just because we're sort of learning how to do 
everything in the, within this concept yeah. that we created. Um, but moving forward, like it's so specific and our needs remain the same as far as square footage, storage needs, yeah. uh, you know, can our refrigerators fit through this doorway, all of that fun stuff that we have <laughs> to think about. Uh, we now know, um, and we have some great partners who consistently have helped us source our locations. Um, so we probably don't have to be quite as um, physical as we have been in the past. All right. Well, Emily, this has been such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I've I've really loved chatting with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Our producer is Pierre Bienname, who also produced our theme music. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week. 